Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. The protagonists in our two books today don't have much in common on the surface. One is a widowed jewelry maker. The other is more of a service industry kind of guy. But in both books, the choices that they make, the situations and predicaments they find themselves in, are driven by the fact that they need money proving the adage that cash rules everything around them. In a bit, we'll hear about that jewelry maker who finds herself accidentally becoming a hitman of sorts, you know, disposing of dirtbag husbands. But first, Deepti Kapoor's Age of Vice is the talk of the town in Bookworld, getting a major book club promo and already interest from TV execs. It's about a young man named Ajay who, by all accounts, is invisible to other people. And Kapoor tells NPR Scott Simon about being a young reporter in New Delhi and noticing all the Ajays of the world, but also the excess and decadence of the people who relied on the Ajays of the world. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Dive into the chilling new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, the riveting adaptation of the acclaimed true crime book. Based on shocking true events, Under the Bridge tells the haunting story of a murder that lays bare a small community's darkest secrets. Go deep into the hidden world of the town's tormented teenagers as detectives race to solve the sinister crime. Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays, only on Hulu. Deepti Kapoor's Age of Vice begins with a crash, and it never lets up. A rich man's car, New Delhi, 3 a.m., 2004, kills five people who live and sleep on the street. The man at the wheel is Ajay. He is 22 and stinks of whiskey. He's sent to jail where he's attacked, but then Ajay attacks his attackers. You see, he's a Wadia man, and slowly we begin to see the life that put him behind the wheel and which steers through so many forces of modern India. Age of Vice is being acclaimed as hypnotic and has already been compared to the great Gatsby and the Godfather. Deepti Kapoor joins us now. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Help us understand your your central character in the course of life that brings Ajay to Delhi, because he he grew up in the kind of poverty that I think even very poor Americans might find difficult to understand. Absolutely, I mean Ajay is um, I would say an oppressed every man. He's a, he's a young boy whose father dies tragically, and then he gets sold in order to pay off this family debt, and he makes his way to the mountains. When he becomes slightly free at the age of 16 or 17, he starts to work in a cafe in the mountains where he meets Sonny, who is the only son and heir to a a big criminal business fortune in New Delhi. And then he makes his way to Delhi. And I see Ajay as the heart of the story. Mm -hmm. Um, He's inspired by a young boy I did actually meet in the mountains when I was traveling in a guest house who had a story of loss, who had a story of being sent away to pay off the family and some family debts. And then I combined his story with the story of young men that I used to see in my 20s when I lived in Delhi. And I had a lot of very wealthy friends. And in these private mansions, you always had these invisible men who catered and served you and made sure that you were always well looked after, but who didn't have any personal lives. Or that's what you thought. They were meant to just be invisible. Ajay, in fact, muses at one point, I'm going to quote your word, he becomes a name to be called and used, turn on like a tap. How so? 
because he's just, he's invisible, but he's also the person who makes sure that every wish mm-hmm. is fulfilled even before you know that you have that need. And I have seen people like that. He's in the beginning anyway, really happy and eager to please. Yeah. Tell us about Sonny and what is, because Sonny seems like he wants to do something different or something better. He wants to use the riches the family has accumulated through a lot of nefarious enterprises and use them for something good. Yes, absolutely. Sonny is, he's really a tragic figure. He's the heir to this massive fortune, but he's not ruthless like his father It was interesting because I also wanted to look at the excess that post-liberalization India started to experience, where you had these vast fortunes being made overnight, especially by people who knew how to, say, maybe rig the system. And then coming back to Sunny, he's just, he wants to please his father, but he also wants to launder his family reputation, and he all, and he wants to do good. So he has all these competing ideas. He doesn't want to be that that gangster's son anymore. He feels like he's been misunderstood, right, by just be being cast as a rich kid and a gangster's son? Yeah, and also um, Delhi at that point of time was still a place where people like Sunny were looked down mm-hmm. upon, and that's where we go to Neda. She is the daughter of a very culturally powerful elite family. Ned is the reporter, conveniently. Yeah, well, yes. And uh, and Sunny wants to prove himself to people like her. They fall in love, but it's also because Sunny wants to say that I count too. I matter. I matter in this new India anyway. You were a reporter in New Delhi for a number of years. May I ask, when you were doing, uh, no doubt, a conscientious job as a reporter, were you also taking notes as a novelist? Oh, yeah. I was taking a lot of mental notes. A lot of times these notes were being taken while I I was stoned or drunk. Um, I was basically observing all the time. I think somewhere deep down I had a subconscious impulse that one day all of this will go somewhere else. I never thought I would be a novelist at that point of time. That came later. But... Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. I did always think that this is great material. It has to be used somewhere. I can't let something pass. Were you stoned or drunk a lot? (laughs) Uh, Was this just in in the ordinary course of being a young person? Or what was going on in your life, may we ask? Oh, I suppose I could say I had some tragedy. I had a father who died quite tragically when I was in university after a long illness. And then my first boyfriend also died within a year, and I was about 22. So I think I became very reckless. I had a car, and that was the biggest present. My brother left the city and uh, to work, and he left me his car. So I used to drive around angry, and I just wanted to dive right into the heart of the city, take all its decadence in. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry for the pain that you went through. Well, thank you. I, mean, I was able to channel it in the, into the writing. So. Yeah. Is that how you feel about the story you've done here? We learn lessons through loss, after all. That, well, you didn't just let the lessons lie around. You put them into a novel. Yeah, and I think what it made me do was just become more sensitive to the pain of others. My mother had a driver at that time who was in Prozac. His brother was in jail for murder. 
you know, he had all these stories of the city and I was also on Prozac. So, you know, we had the common feeling between us and he used to tell me all his stories. And, and all of that also went into, into the novels. I've got to tell you, as someone who loved this novel, at some point I rooted for all three of the major characters. And then at other points I would say to myself, oh, come on, don't do that. But I, I guess that's life, isn't it? It's just, that's who we are. I mean, I think then that my job is done, that you ended up rooting for everyone. I want through my books to at least create that kind of radical empathy that you feel for the characters even when you know they're terribly flawed. So I'm very happy to hear that. Deepti Kapoor, her novel, Age of Ice. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Perini Shroff's debut novel, The Bandit Queens, is about murder, domestic abuse, and gender roles and class. It's also genuinely funny. She talked to NPR's Mary Louise Kelly about why she thought it was important to balance the darkness of her book with some irreverence. To new fiction now, and the story of Gita, jewelry maker in an Indian village with a dangerous reputation. You see, Gita is a widow because she killed her husband. At least that is what people think. And Gita is happy for the rumors to stand uncorrected because, well, she likes freedom a lot better than she liked her husband. Everything is going well for her until the other women in the village start asking for help getting rid of their husbands. And that is the starting point for the wild ride that is the new novel, The Bandit Queens. It's the debut novel of Perini Shroff. Perini Shroff, welcome to All Things Considered. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. How exactly does everyone in this village come to believe that Gita murdered her husband? Well, Gita's husband, Ramesh, he, he disappeared. He ran out on her five years prior to when the novel begins. And gossip is a huge theme in this novel. And... About one's reputation, which is one's currency when you're in a village this small. At first, I'm not really sure that people truly believe it. I think it might be a mixed bag. But I do believe in a village of this size, people love ostracizing. And I think the rumor snowballs. And before you know it, people believe it because they want to believe it. People believe it because Geetha's a pariah and better her than them. And she finds this works very much to her advantage in certain ways, explain. Absolutely. People are superstitious, and Geetha uses that superstition to her gain. And while she's socially mixed with dirt, as is said throughout the novel, her business is thriving, and she tries to convince herself that that's all she needs from an economic standpoint. She doesn't need friends. She just needs uh, money. And she does, I want to tease out a little bit just how she uses this to her advantage. Um, people are scared of her. <laughs> They're scared not to buy her jewelry when she when she pushes it. <laughs> and there are advantages to that in, in such a small village. 
Um, well, Geetha, I think she tries to convince herself she doesn't need anybody, and so she convinces herself this is to her advantage. Children don't bother her, but that's okay because she doesn't like children. People don't bother her, but that's okay because she doesn't like people. And throughout the course of the novel, she realizes that there's an advantage to camaraderie, there's an advantage to friendship, there's an advantage to not being so isolated, and there's a power in that too. And so while she has had some limited power by herself, when Geetha's world opens up and she has a second chance with friendship, has a second chance with perhaps romance, their power there is magnified tenfold. There was a line that resonated with me. Uh, I have never lived in a village in rural India, but I I was right there with Gita when she starts thinking about the fact of women living within spaces that other people have defined. Why do other people get to make all the choices? Why don't we get to make some? You were it felt like reaching for something universal there. Oh, absolutely! I'm so happy that you said that because that means it worked for you. There are details throughout the novel that are very specific to this village in India. For instance, Geetha really wants a refrigerator. And that's specific to her and that's specific to this climate. But the larger themes of patriarchy and domestic violence and female friendship and female camaraderie, that is universal, as well as what I I mentioned earlier about gossip and reputation being a commodity. I feel like the claustrophobia and the close-knit community of this village could be translated to any close community worldwide. This novel is actually very funny, like laugh out loud funny. How did you think about that? Why was that important to use humor to get at some very dark stuff? I wrote this novel in in 2020 um, during the pandemic, and I started and the humor kept creeping in, likely because during those grim pandemic days, I also needed some levity uh, through the darkness. And I kept trying to shove it off, like, this is serious, we can't do this, this is irreverent. And then I found that not only did that comedy, that dark humor keep creeping in, it was serving to levitate. It was a nice foil to the darker themes I wanted to address and take on seriously. And I found that instead of fighting it, I should lean into it because it was helping me say something. That's interesting. That idea of, of, like, take anything, take whatever you can get your hands on to get you through a dark moment. Um, And you were writing this at a moment where we were all doing that, just looking for, for a little hope wherever we could find it during the pandemic. I think that the dark comedy was not only essential when I was drafting it, but the more I did it, the more it seemed like it was realistic because... Human beings, we do find levity even in some macabre issues. It's how we survive. It's how we get through it. And especially with this group of women, like the humor through their oppression is how they get through it. It's how they come through the other side. Give me an example of a scene where you're using humor to propel your characters through something quite serious, quite dark. I'll try to be generic here. Um, There is, as we've touched, that the women seek Geetha's help in uh, disposing of their own husbands. There's a dinner party scene, and the women are attempting to rid one such husband, and it's not going well. And the comedy there, as they start to bicker with each other, really comes through. And there's like a bit of blaming before they say, all right, let's put our fingers down and pool our minds and let's get through this together. They're but, serving a poisoned curry. Am I allowed to give that? <laughs> yes, I think so. I mean, They're this trying is, to get the I, plate I, in front I, of the right person. They're trying to get the plate of poisoned, absolutely, veggie curry in front of the right victim, and it is uh, not going well. 
And you're making me laugh, and we're talking about poisoning someone at a dinner party. So I guess, <laughs> yeah, it, it works. It makes you wonder your own moral scale, really. Yes, um, but there's th- that. I, I guarantee you're not going to be rooting for the these select men. You're going to be rooting for the women. So Stay with the idea of moral scale, because this was what I found so interesting about Gita, is she is rescuing stray dogs. Like, she can't stand to see them mistreated, even as she is helping plot the murder of someone she knows quite well and is at a dinner party with. How did she wrestle with that? How did you think about it as you wrote her? The relativity there is about, for me, is about the other person's actions. Like, in this instance, the dog hasn't hurt anybody. The dog's been harmed. The dog has been abused. But the dog has no malicious intent. And the husband with the fateful curry has done some dark, horrible things. And that's where the sliding scale comes in. When I first approached the idea of women getting together to dispose of, of a husband, I I struggled with it. If someone's killing someone, they're a sociopath. And how do I get a reader to root for a sociopath? And I was talking to my father about it. And he said, I'll never forget this. He said, I don't think you have to be a sociopath to kill someone. I think you just have to be hungry enough. And that really resonated with me uh, when I wrote Farah, who is the first wife to approach Gita for help in killing her abusive husband. And I think when I was dissecting actions and motives, it was very clear to me, okay, they just have to be in a horrible enough position where this is their out. We've been speaking with the writer Perini Shroff about her debut novel, which is titled The Bandit Queens. Perini Shroff, thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Just a quick programming note, I'm going to be out for the next few months on parental leave. So my to-be-read pile right now is just books like How to Keep Your Baby Alive and Which Cloth Diapers to Use So Your Kid Doesn't Hold It Against You for the Next 12 Years. But do not worry, you'll still be getting the pod from some stellar guest hosts in your feeds every day. Uh, and if you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org newsletter books. I'm Andrew Limbaugh. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez-Armien and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show Elements for this week were produced and edited by Erica Ryan, Mallory Yu, Elena Burnett, Ashley Brown, Ashley Lisenby, Melissa Gray, Adam Rainey, Tyler Bartlam, Samantha Balaban, Lena Muhammad, and Courtney Dorney. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. uh, But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.